Today on episode number 422 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, The New Science of Learning with Todd Sakrysik. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm so pleased today to be welcoming back to the show Dr. Todd Sakrysik. He's an associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and president of the International Teaching Learning Cooperative. Todd was a tenured associate professor of psychology and built faculty development efforts at three universities before joining UNC. At UNC, Todd provides resources for faculty on various topics related to teaching, learning, leadership, and scholarly activity. Todd has served on many educationally related boards and work groups, including the Journal of Excellence in College Teaching, International Journal for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning, College Teaching, and Education in the Health Professions. Todd has consulted with organizations such as the American Council on Education, Lenovo Computer, Microsoft, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He's delivered keynote addresses and campus workshops at over 300 conferences and university campuses in 48 states and 12 countries. Now, Todd, you have me wondering what two it is that we're missing. I just feel a sense of completion needed, but I am way off track now on this bio. (laughs) Todd publishes widely on the topics of student learning, effective teaching, leadership, scholarly activity, and assessment. Todd's recently co-authored books include The New Science of Learning, 3rd Edition, which you'll hear a lot about on today's episode, Teaching for Learning, 2nd Edition, Advancing Online Teaching, and Dynamic Lecturing. Todd Sakrysik, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Oh, Bonnie, this is so great to be back. I've been looking forward to this for so long. Me too, me too. And I have an a, a unofficial name for your book, as you are already aware. I call it The New, New, New Science of Learning. And so before we talk about the new, new, new science of learning, I would like to ask you, what is the old science of learning? I've never heard that before. It's like an edition of Teaching for Learning I did. I never thought about calling it Teaching, Teaching for Learning. Yes, so, yes. I can't wait till I get to like a sixth edition of something. That's going to be exciting. So the old science of learning, I guess what it really boils down to is that we have learned a ton of stuff over the last probably 15 years with neuroscience, the way that we can actually look at the brain and see what's happening. Um, we have measurement devices now, so we know when people are sleeping, um, we know learning like where it consolidates and why it consolidates is actually down to which stages of sleep. We know that certain things like when you're in REM sleep, it's more procedural. And when you're in deep sleep, it's more 
semantic kinds of information. And so those things were never done before because we couldn't measure uh, measure them. So the new science of learning is basically we have an opportunity to look at how humans process information in ways that we never knew before. And then before I finish, that means we've learned some really cool stuff. So when I was in psychology as an undergraduate, and this would have been a long time ago, one of the things we were told is you were born with a certain number of neurons, and as you killed those neurons off, then you never get any new ones. Blatantly not true, but we didn't know it because we didn't have the instrumentation that could watch neurons form new connections and actually build new neurons. So that's the new science. Yeah, there's a lot that we know now that we didn't used to. And that also means there's a lot we still don't know. <laughs> and so, yeah. Yes, that's why resources like this one are so important to us to take what we do know and be able to help us be able to thrive in these different contexts of learning. And you give us a nice, simple, I mean, simple, but simple to read, but but it goes so much deeper. But a simple definition of learning is that when we do something new from experience, and you talk about a few different types of learning, you talk about classical conditioning, operant conditioning, and social learning theory. And I laugh because you do make a little joke in there about like hearing the bell ring with the salivating dogs. And many of us remember this from our maybe intro to psychology class or whatever as one aspect of learning. I know for myself, something that didn't get covered really at all that I can recall in my psychology classes was this social learning theory. And it also for me was some an area of my own teaching that I found I really needed to develop a greater appreciation for and and how to be able to use that theory in my own teaching. I'm curious, what do you find from faculty that you work with, or perhaps even from yourself, how these three kind of interplay? And if there are others who might be challenged with using one of these theories in their own teaching in the way I described. So, Hmm. You've just asked a lot of things there. <laughs> there were five <laughs> questions in one. <laughs> There's a lot wrapped up in there. I'll tell you what. So, you know, this is fascinating. And quite frankly, this is one of the reasons I was excited to write the book. And I'll come right back to what you're saying is there's so much out there. And so we don't have time. If I'm teaching math, if I'm teaching English, teaching humanities, whatever I'm teaching, I don't have time to go out and try to figure out what is relevant and what is helpful. So what I tried to do is look through look through the material out there and figure out in about 100,000 words what would really be helpful. And so I picked three. There's other learning theories out there, too. So the first one you mentioned is classical conditioning, very quickly, type of stuff. And Pavlov, yes, that's it. But it's it's a kind of conditioning where you don't have to actually do anything to be conditioned. So in a classroom situation, if a person asks a question and the teacher says, that's kind of stupid, and you just kind of cringe a little bit, that's a classically conditioned setup now. And the next time somebody asks a question and you cringe just quickly, and people do this all the time, that's because you've learned that. You weren't born like that. And so you didn't have to go out and try to learn it. It just happened to you. So for the for the people out there listening, if you ask students a question and they kind of like cower just a little bit or they they look their face scrunches up, whatever, just keep an eye out because there's people who have been treated poorly and they're just responding. So that's one kind. And there's lots of other classical conditioning. It gets pretty complicated, but that's enough for now. And then there's operant conditioning. Operant conditioning is just based on you do something. You don't go out and study, but you do something. 
And then there's a response. If the response is such that you end up doing it more, it's a reinforcement. If the response is such that you don't do it anymore, then it's a punishment. That's just as simple as it is. Um, and so operant conditioning are things like student ask a question and you start with, wow, that's a good question. I just reinforced you asking the question. Or I could say, hmm, why'd you ask that question? I probably just punished it. So the, the point there is we're doing stuff all the time. If I ask you to read chapter one and then I give a quiz over it and you take the quiz and you read the chapter to prepare for the quiz, I don't care if you liked the quiz or not, it was a positive reinforcement because it increased the probability of reading the book. And lots of the things we do in, in, in teaching and learning are, are those types of things. But we sometimes forget about the social learning stuff. And that was Albert Bandura. It really got popular in the 70s. It's so important. Number one, for observational learning. When we watch somebody do something, if, if someone else in the class asks a question and the teacher says something really mean, and then I think, I'm not going to ask any questions. Nothing has happened to me, but I observed it. Observational learning. Now, you ask for a volunteer. I don't put my hand up. I don't put my hand up because I just saw what happened. On the other hand, if something good happens and I raise my hand, again, didn't happen to me, but I watched it. Another area of social learning theory is self-efficacy, the extent to which you're willing to persist when you're faced with potential failure. And if, if you got a person that says, you know, I just can't do it, I just can't, just can't, they have a low self-efficacy, that's going to be a problem. But the person who says, you know, this is really hard, but I think if I, I can work through it, I can get it. And you, as a faculty member, can help students develop more deeper, better self-efficacy so that when they do face things later, they will say, you know, I'm going to push through this one. So those are kind of the, the, the different areas. And then the way they interact is you kind of asked about the interaction too, is classical conditioning. I kind of mentioned that already. If, if a student asks a question and gets yelled at, that's classical conditioning is happy to that student. I'm not going to ask anything. That's observational. Because I don't ask anything, it's actually kind of a punishment as well in the sense that I've watched somebody be punished. I'm not going to ask that question. So these are all wrapped together all the time. Mm. Oh, it's just exciting to watch what happens. And what I will tell everybody, just as you do things, as you teach, just watch the reactions. So many times we just do without processing it. I ask a question, student doesn't know it, I go to the next student. That student knows it. I ask a different question of a student on the right hand side of the room. They know it. And I say, good. And then I go to another student. How often do we stop and, and pause and think for that just a, a second or two? How did the student respond when I started to move away? When I ask, when I ask a woman in the class, and I'm saying woman because this is very sexist. When I ask a woman in the class and she doesn't answer within like two seconds and I say, oh, you know what? That was a tough question. Um, let me ask it a different way. If I ask a male a question and after four seconds, twice as long, I say, so what do you think? Come on, you got something. I've just treated those two humans very differently. And it's so subtle that I don't think most people would catch it unless you stop and say, what just happened here? And those are the nuances we have to watch for. Yeah. And so much for me is that that self-awareness and then also getting other sources besides yourself to catch you on those things like recording yourself in class or classroom observations from peers and that kind of thing can be so important in helping to shape our own behavior. Well, I know I didn't warn you about this, Todd, but I know you're ready for anything, right? And so we are going to play a game. And here's okay. how this game is going to go. You are going to tell us 
if you could be a superhero, I mean, you already are a superhero, but if you could be even more of one and have a new superpower, what would your preferred superpower be? Well, first of all, I'm not a superhero, but I'm a guy trying to get along. That's all I am. If I had a superpower, you know what? Most people will go for the obvious things, flying, transporting stuff. I, I'm, my superpower, I'd want to have ZPD ability. Zones of proximal development. I would love to look at somebody and know whether or not they're understanding what I'm saying. Could they handle a little bit more? Am I a little too deep? That's their zone of proximal development. It goes from, if I'm not complex enough, it's boring. You're bored by what I'm saying. If it's too complex, you're frustrating. And so somewhere in between there, you can learn. And the top half's the best. That's your zone of proximal development. And if I could see that, whew, you could change the world. It would be an incredible superpower to have. I think there have been times in my own teaching, especially early on, I'm probably better at it now, but especially early on where I thought I had that power in the sense of I would find myself making fundamental attribution errors and projecting things onto learners that were absolutely not there. And so I try to recognize in myself, any of us still have the capacity to do that, but to reduce my confidence in my own ability and to try to interrupt that and try to get different information. And and so that's a, I don't know, this zones of proximal development. I think sometimes I see us having overconfidence in our ability to do it when really we do need other sources of, of data to be able to help us calibrate this and do it well. Yes. And, and, you know, before we move on, this is, there are a couple of things that are just the root of being a teacher. And that's a huge one. Knowing whether or not, or knowing how to pitch things at what level. I use an example sometimes telling jokes. If you're telling a joke to a group that you've never talked to before, and they're making an initial impression on you and you're of you, and you're telling this joke, you get one shot. And if you tell a joke that's, that's too complicated, not complicated, it just doesn't fit the audience. If it's not really funny, but funny to you, all those things could be true. But if you tell the joke and the group just laughs hysterically, think about that for a second. You had to lay that all out and make a decision before you told the joke. Other times you're in a situation, you think, hmm, you don't say anything out loud, but I've got a joke in my head, but I'm not going to tell it because it's wrong. And now, wrong for that group at that time, like it's not going to be funny. When you walk in the classroom, it's the same thing. You have to decide what and how you teach and at what level. And I don't think a lot of faculty give themselves credit for that. That's an amazing thing. And that's why teaching is a profession and you're a professional. I've watched people who were poor teachers or people who are not teachers who try to teach. Think about that for a second. And they just lay stuff out and everyone sits there and just says, I don't, I don't get it. No, it, it wasn't pitched the right way at the right level. So that is the thing you were talking about, getting at the right level, just hugely important. When I think about the many challenges that have been exasperated by the pandemic, one of them is most definitely cognitive load. And I think about the ways that people have shared about, you know, quote unquote, inviting people into your homes and all of the challenges inherent in that. There also were some opportunities. I, I joked on Twitter, although I was quite serious too, that I, I now know more students' dogs' names than I ever have in my entire teaching career. So it's not all bad, but it definitely has been challenging. And mm-hmm. an aspect of what has made this challenging for learners and teachers alike has to do with cognitive 
load. What can you tell us about cognitive load, how it relates to teaching and learning, and why it's so important for us to be aware of its presence? Phew. Um, how, so many que- just, how many I, questions was that? <laughs> 3.5. <laughs> okay, um, we're getting smaller now, Todd. They're shrinking. Uh, before we're done, you're going to be asking one. It'll yes, be great. I, I can't wait. Um, <laughs> Here's my friend, Bonnie, who has done this more times than anybody I know. And by the way, never missed a week. This is just ridiculous. Never missed a week. So you are amazing at this. For cognitive load, that's another one of those things as a faculty member. And it's just critical for you to understand cognitive load and how people process information. Quick version, it really boils down to working memory kinds of stuff, is you can only process so much at one time. Think about like the expressway. You got cars running down the expressway. Everything's great. But the expressway can only handle so many cars at a given moment. And when there's too many merging on, merging off, changing lanes, all of a sudden there's too much stuff, comes to a screeching halt. Cognitive load does the same thing. I can process stuff that keep rolling along until there's too much. Now, how do we decide there's too much? There's three levels or three types of cognitive load that we pay attention to. One is implicit load. It's just Some things are harder than others. A physics book is just harder than a third grade novel. It just is. The next part is extraneous load, which is kind of cool. Those are the things in the environment, which Bonnie was referring to, that take cognitive load. They're like the cars down the highway. They're extra things, but they're not really there to help your learning. They're just extra. So if you've got a dog barking in the background or kids running around or I'm trying to log in and then I can't find something or if I'm in the classroom and the people next to me are talking, there's all this stuff that's going on. And that's extra load. If you've ever been reading a difficult article and and there's a couple people having a conversation at the other side of the room, but it's a little loud and you say, excuse me, could you keep it down? What you could have said was, pardon me, I'm reading something with high implicit load and you are extraneous load. If you could drop it down, I could pay attention to this article. But that's how cognitive load works there. And then the last, last little piece is dealing with how... It's germane load, and it's, it's how you process information. So if I do something over and over and over again, our brain is wonderful in that as you do something more and more frequently, it's long-term potentiation. That path of neurons fires easier and easier. So the next thing you know, driving a car was hard at the beginning. Next thing you know, you're in a car. You don't think about changing lanes or pushing the gas pedal or turning the steering wheel. It's just, it's there because of you did it over and over again. The other type are schemas. If you like walk into a fast food restaurant, you know the difference than walking into a Ruth Chris Steakhouse. We have schemas of what this stuff does. Now, very quickly, I know I've talked a lot, but I'm going to pull it all right back together all at once. If there's too much extraneous load around, just be watching for that. If you put a PowerPoint slide up and you've got, if you've got words on a PowerPoint slide, people are going to read it because there's words. And if you start talking, now you're talking at the same time there's stuff up there, you've got too much cognitive load and they can't do it all at once. They're going to shut down and then they can pick one thing. So they're going to pick reading and they're going to ignore your talking because they can't handle it both. If you've got a little characters up there on your PowerPoint slides, it's distracting. If you tell a story, hey, you know, this reminds me of a time that's extraneous load unless it ties right back to the material. And if you can help your students form schemas, how can you pull stuff together like, I don't know, classical conditioning? And if I can get you to understand the concept of classical conditioning, that's a whole schema. 
Now you don't have to come back and get the pieces. You pull the whole thing out. So as your students are learning and they're building schemas, they're practicing over and over so things are fast, which is why we have to learn foundational things. You can't ignore those. When they get that down, now they're processing things. If you can keep the extraneous load down, you have a whole lot more learning taking place. So that was five, six minutes of something that I would suggest go read quickly on it. Tell you what, go to Wikipedia and just start there. Hey, those of you who are all saying, hey, well, you don't go to Wikipedia, that's a terrible place. Mm -mm. They have a tagline that they don't use, but they should. Wikipedia, fabulous place to start, hideous place to end. <laughs> so go check out Cognitive Load. It will get you rolling on those, those three types there. But it's, it's massively important to know where your students are. Even just the conversation that we've had so far, and we're only skimming the surface here, as you mentioned, it is fascinating the way that these things interplay with each other. Because while we want to keep the extraneous cognitive load stuff out, and we really do need to be purposeful in how we design those learning experiences and all the associated materials and artifacts. Yes. We still want to be thinking about the zone of proximal development because you don't want it to be easy. And that is another thing that I think about early in my teaching. When things got hard, I thought I was supposed to fix that. And now I recognize when things get hard, unless the hardness is unrelated to the learning, but that learning, but the deepest learning is going to be messy, is going to involve failure. And yes. that if I try to fix it too much when it's actually relevant to the deeper learning and the failures and all of that, I mean, and this, so it's fascinating to me how all of this interplays and then back to how you started us off with thinking about the different learning theories and how they interplay too. And you can tell I have a little bit of a schema going <laughs> for myself in the sense of when you know about these different models, you can start to begin to see the ways in which they might shape your teaching and the ways in which they might shape others' learning. Yeah, and I, one quick thing, you just said something that was so really so important. And that long-term potentiation where you practice, it becomes easier, practice becomes easier. What you just said was when it gets hard and you want to help the students because they're struggling with it, Keep in mind that you have done it over and over and over again. That's why it's easy for you. They will never, ever get good at it if they don't do it over and over. So if you step in and do it for them, it's not going to help. Ikea bookcase, boom. That's excess cognitive load as soon as you open the box. But here's the deal. Ikea is amazing. After you put together two or three of the bookcases, it's really not hard. You learn systems. You put pieces around and everything. You become really fast really quick. Just think about it for a second. What happens if every time I open the box and I say, wow, this looks complicated, you say, let me do it. And then I sit back and watch you. I would never become good at it. So I, the concept there is just let people struggle a little bit. It's actually called desirable difficulties. And Robert Bjork has a whole lab about it. But I'm glad you mentioned it, Bonnie, because it is a foundational thing. And it's a hard thing. You want to help your students, but you're not. I always love when Robert Bjork's name comes up because he's been on the show previously and I was invited to go speak somewhere in Texas and I can still recall standing up in front of 300 or 400 people and someone asking me a question and me thinking this relates directly to his famous thing that he says, failure is the friend of learning, only I could not for the life in me, remember Robert Bjork's name. But the funny thing is that like you only have to really do that once. 
Once mm-hmm. you fail really publicly and you just mess up so exquisitely, you will remember <laughs> that name in the future. I literally have never forgotten all those years um, since then. It's like, oh, no, it's but but I mean, and I also think that's kind of good for us. And we're going to this is a spoiler alert for later in our conversation. As educators, we're going to need to be pretty vulnerable and willing to make mistakes or we're actually not doing our students any favors in that category either. Yeah, part of the social learning theory, they got to see us make mistakes too. So, yeah. Yeah. So, another big area that I think we kind of get off track on. You, of course, have created this wonderful resource for students, but I mean, actually, you've created it for all of us, but I, I'm going to take it on the aspect now for, for teachers. I feel like way too much of the time when it comes to group projects, we just assume they already got it from somewhere else. And if they didn't, they should have. So I would I would love to have you talk to any of us who assign group projects. And it doesn't matter, master's, doctoral degree, undergraduate, wh- whatever level it is. What should we be doing to help those learners in those group projects be able to actually learn from the experience of being in a group and then learn from whatever the particular assignment is being assigned? Uh, that's another one that's great. But actually, I want to pick up a tiny little piece and then I'll get right to the groups. When you said it's, it's written for students, the voice is written for students. When I write a book, I, I try really hard in my head. It usually it's about third chapter before I can really get it down. Then I go back and rewrite the first two. And I put myself in a, in a set and it's like, if you're sitting in the classroom as a student, what would I want to hear? What would I need to hear? If you're a teacher teaching it, what would I need to say? What would I need to construct? And I can tell you, I wrote this book with two voices and I purposely did it. And I went through, and if I was successful, and this is not an easy thing to do, so I may have missed, a student should be able to read this book and say, wow, this is really helpful. And a faculty member should read this book and say, wow, this is really helpful. So try it out. If you're if you're listening, give it a read and see if I did that, because I think I was straddling a line that I might have made it. I would just like to say that for this faculty member, you knocked it out of the park. So if that's what you were going for, you certainly did for me. And I, you know, I definitely think that you you covered both of those bases. I've, and it felt so relatable to me, both as someone who's been in a role many times as learner and many of the, many of the times as teacher. So thank you for that gift. Good. Excellent. Well, I'm glad we did that one. Now we go back to the group, but I wanted to make sure you get that in there. Um, in terms of the folks listening, I don't don't think of it as, as a student's book. It's It's both, I hope. So the groups, the group was chapter 12. And I got to say, when I started this book, there were certain things that I just really, really wanted in the book. And so a, a chapter about groups is just something I just really wanted. And the reason is that when you say to students, we're going to have a group project, there's a preponderance of times when they, people will groan. And part of it is that people get put into groups, but not told how to do it. So then they're not successful. And then they hear the word group again. And their first thought is I wasn't successful. It turns out if you teach people how to work well in groups, they don't hate them so much. And so there are a couple things you can do. I'll tell you, I think one of the things everybody should do is before you actually start off on your group project, put your students into into groups of four or five and ask them to talk for five to 10 minutes about the best group they've ever been in and the worst group they've ever been in and jot down the characteristics. What what happened? Then have everybody report out. There are going to be students who are going to say, you know, I was in a group and like, no, we, 
total chaos. Nobody knew what anybody was doing. Somebody else was going to say, I was in a group and it was great because we assigned each other roles and it worked so well. Somebody else is going to say, you know, we'd get into groups, but we never talked about the topic. Somebody else is going to say, we were in a group one time or I was in a group one time and there was a person who was the leader who set out agendas and it was great. So if the students talk, listen to them. And then what you can say to them is, I will do my best if you do your best and we will try to minimize those things that were were problematic for you, and we will maximize the things that were good. And those are things like, right on the first day of class, do your best to set up a, a, a meeting. What'll happen is if you don't do that is a group will get together and they'll set up the next time they're gonna meet. And then when they'll say, well, when we meet, we'll pick the next time. You all know how hard it is to pick a time to meet 10 days out, but it's not that hard to pick a time to meet that's a month out two months out. So you pick all those. And then I tell my students all the time, make one extra meeting just before the due date, because if you need it, you got it. And if you don't, you can cancel it. Um, but explain to them, you set that up, set up the roles, set up what you're going to do. Every group meeting should have an agenda, have a timekeeper. And so it's the things we know that work. We, we all know kind of what works because we've set through some really good meetings and we've set through some bad ones. And if you don't, teach students how to do well in groups, they don't tend to get better. And some of those students are going to become department chairs. So we really want to teach them how to be good with groups. Before Todd and I get to the recommendations part of today's episode, I just wanted to take a moment to thank today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. If you've been listening for any length of time, you already have heard of Text Expander. They've been the longest running sponsor. And what I love about them is that they are such an integral part of my daily computing life. And Text Expander is a service that lets you quickly and easily set up what they call snippets, little tiny things that you might type. Like for me, it's the letter X that might be a part of the first part of what I type, and then it might be V-U-S-I-G, as in the signature that I use at my university, or I might do X and then I-L-S-I-G, different kinds of signatures that I can quickly insert to customize something. I use it every time I make show notes where I type in T-I-H-E-S-N, as in teaching in higher ed show notes, and automatically it brings up a field and says, what's the episode number? Who's the guest? What will you be talking about? And it populates the entire thing. And all of text expansion, what it does is really automate the things that can be automated to make it seamless and you can create consistency for yourself or even across teams very easily so that you can free up the time for the really meaningful stuff. If it's a letter of recommendation, the automated parts can get done, the stuff that shouldn't take a lot of our cognitive load like we've been talking about to free us up for the stuff that really does require the deeper reflection and writing. And if you head on over to textexpander.com slash podcast, you can find out more about Text Expander get a trial, try it out for yourself and receive 20% off your subscription should you decide to do that. So please head on over to textexpander.com slash podcast. Let them know that you heard about Text Expander from Teaching in Higher Ed. And I'd love to hear it if you do end up using Text Expander, some of the creative uses that you find for it. Thanks once again to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And my recommendation, first off, is to be like Todd. And what I mean by that is that I found not only, as I mentioned previously, 
I found that this book is a very helpful, relatable resource for learner or teacher alike. But I really appreciated your vulnerability throughout it. You talk not in excessive ways, but enough to say, hey, this is a guy that maybe hasn't always remembered everything or hasn't hasn't always, you know, done what he set out to do. And just to, because we're all going to encounter struggles. So talking about your experience as a first generation student, not always having a lot of money, I learned a lot about you as a person, it made you more relatable, and which is to say vulnerable. And so I have something specific to recommend around my um, my own recent being like Todd and being more vulnerable in a space. Before I share my second recommendation, I just want to read a little bit and then invite you to respond, Todd. So this is from the final chapter. You write, I leave you with the following to consider in the months ahead. Be mindful of your past, but look to the future. Listen carefully to the voices of others and find respectful ways for your voice to be heard. Find ways to get what you work so hard for without taking away from others. More importantly, always strive for more so that you have more you can share ever forward. Would you share what it was like for you writing this final chapter that was such a gift to me and I know will be a gift to so many others? Um, Yeah, and I got to tell you, (laughs) kind of tear up every time I hear that stuff. And it's because I did write that was really written from the heart there was so many things that were rough going through school and just, I mean, my wife and I lived in Northern Michigan and we had to cross the Mackinac bridge to go home. And we didn't go home one time because we didn't have the dollar 50 toll. That's why we didn't go home. We couldn't come up with a dollar 50. And so these things happen. And, and I think it's really important. And this is why I really, when I talk to students, I really want them to know is, I mean, I've written 11 books and I've, I've like given 300 presentations at colleges and universities. I think it's 12 countries, I think, been invited to. All that's happened. And I think it's really important to point out when I went to college, I was a first generation student at college. I was terrible. I got an F minus minus on my calc or on my, on my chemistry test. If you don't think you can get an F minus minus or a 30 percent and have the prof grade it. Um, I flunked all of my classes pretty much. And. I went to the registrar and said, I need to drop out of college. What do I do? I did this at the first semester. How do I drop out? She said, don't worry about it, hon. Just take this piece of paper and get the signatures from your five classes. You bring it back and we'll take care of it. And I said, okay. And I got four signatures. And Tim Sawyer in psychology refused to sign it. He says, this is stupid. He says, you're just, you've started out bad. You can correct this. Maybe you can't. If you can't, great. Flunk out later, but, but don't flunk out now. Give it some other try. And so I point out at the beginning of the book, and I will point out to everybody listening, one signature by Tim Sawyer saying no, that's what made the books possible, the speaking gigs possible. I got an honorary doctorate. I never in my life I expected to get a doctorate, much less an honorary one. One signature. And I've traveled the world, one signature. And I've been able to speak to a lot of people. I never would have met Bonnie. One signature. When a student comes and needs some help, just take a second and see if your your minute or your refusal to say, I'm not going down that path, we're going to figure this out, will change their life. And that's just, to me, the ability to help people do that, that's the thing. 
Thank you so much for that, Todd. And and thank you again for the book. I am now going to be like Todd. (laughs) And I'm going to share a little bit about an experience where I decided to be vulnerable in that way that you model so beautifully for us. I decided to post a tweet. And I will admit this was one where I kind of had my finger on the do I really want to press the tweet button on this or not? And I decided to and the tweet said, feeling a little bit scared of the reading commitment I've made to myself and to teaching in higher ed listeners and guests. I have the honor of speaking to some tremendous educators and thinkers and reading their books over the next two months. One of the books is about math, math, can I do it? And then the emoji that I put is the crying, laughing emoji, trying to be lighthearted. And and so what resulted on this is some people who I do know commenting, such as my husband says, plus you'll get lots of credits for our library challenge. We joined our local library's reading challenge. So this is really like stepping up my long form reading game has been fun. Some people who I don't know, but it was so fun to just be encouraged by, you know, people saying you've got this. Yes, yes, you can. It was really fun just to get people's re- reminders about growth mindset. And I am a big believer in growth mindset. It's, you know, if I put my mind to something, like I am working on a person becoming a person who can <laughs> read books, which actually reminds me, Todd, of uh, Stephen Brookfield was really coming and speaking at a number of Lilly conferences I got to attend years back. That's a really big part. He's modeled that for me. I am becoming a person who we did our entire faculty gathering one year off of his inspiration around I am becoming a person who. So anyway, fast forward in the tweets to Peter Newberry. He asks me, is it the book I'm talking about, Math for Human Flourishing by Francis Sue? Because that is an absolute joy to read. And I was not familiar with Francis Sue or his work. And no, it was not his book. And then George Woodbury, who actually has recommended, I think, probably five or six guests. George has really been a connector for me, for many excellent guests um, in the area of math, but also in other disciplines as well. So thanks to George for asking about what the book was. It's, by the way, if you're interested, Who's Counting? Uniting Numbers and Narratives with Stories from Pop Culture, Puzzles, Politics, and More by John. Alan Paulos. And so I'll be interviewing him coming up. But anyway, back to Peter Newbery's recommendation. I definitely, of course, love hearing from people who listen to the show. Peter has been on the show before. He's also recommended many tremendous guests. So I'll definitely be looking forward to learning more about Francis Sue's work, including the book that Peter mentioned. But, you know, we can't always read all the books we want to read is the understatement of the world. So Peter recommended an incredible blog post that is entitled The Lesson of Grace in Teaching. And I did read that. And that's my second recommendation. What a beautiful look. And it actually ties Todd back to something that you mentioned. It's the little thing. And and he uses the word grace to describe these little things that, that um, I mean, he, he talks about that um, a student mentioning something about getting things in late because a parent had passed away. And there are all kinds of ways we as faculty might respond to that news. And how Francis responds is, can I take you to coffee? And then shares of his own parents' struggles with cancer and like really meeting way beyond. I mean, that is way beyond, I think, 
what someone might anticipate by just sharing that news with their professor. They're, they're asking for an extension. What they got, he describes as grace. And so it's just a beautifully written talk that he gave as I think he was maybe um, receiving some kind of an award, but it kind of went viral. It's just an exquisite piece of writing and just a reminder to me and to so many of us is how the seemingly little things that we can do that can change an entire trajectory of someone's life and our, our just sort of awareness of the importance of the discipline that it takes to, to kind of think carefully and intentionally about the way we're going to respond. So those are my recommendations. And Todd, I'm going to pass it over to you for yours. Wow, that's great. Um, and I do have to comment on the one, though, that you just said about the things that said Everybody listening, just everybody listening, think about a time when somebody said something, maybe even as a throwaway statement, but that statement changed your course. I don't use positive negative. It changed your course. And everybody I've ever met has at least one of those. And the cool thing I like to try to work at, and I hope you do too, is down the road, wouldn't it be cool if somebody said to a different person who changed the course and that person says you? Your name comes up. So I try my best to just say the one quick little thing off to the side. Then I walk away. It's not a big discussion. It's like, you know what? That's one of the best. That's one of the best essays I've ever seen. It is incredible. And I walk away. But the point is we can do that. Those little things. Yeah. So a recommendation. Whew, this is hard. There's just I've, I listen to a lot of your things and you know, so many things have been recommended. But um, I don't remember seeing Ambient Mixer. So Ambient Mixer is an app. And it's really pretty cool because um, if you really need kind of a noise around, people do TVs, radio, different things. If you need that noise or something, white noise is okay, but it's a little staticky. This ambient mixer will allow you to pick like a foundational thing. And then it's a mixer. You can change it. So you can pick like Hogwarts. And then you can say a little bit more fire crackling, a little bit less chatter, and you go through and make it. If you're from New York City and you find yourself in, I don't know, K-State in Manhattan, Manhattan, Kansas, you can't sleep because there's no sirens and stuff. So you can pick New York City and say, I want more garbage trucks, less sirens. And so it's a mixer of different sounds. And I play that now when I'm writing. And so it's, it gives me the ability to listen to a stream and add some wind if I want. And so I really like that one. Ambient mixer. Oh, Todd, that sounds phenomenal. Thank you so much for not just today's visit to teaching in higher ed, but for all of your prior ones and the way that you've spoken to my teaching and so many others. And I'm just so grateful for our friendship and for the opportunity to keep learning from you. And just thank you again for coming on the show. Well, I really appreciate it. I, I remember when you started this program and not today's program, the whole thing and just looking forward to what you would do. And it is so so much more than I ever expected. You've done a fabulous job. Thank you for letting me be on the show. Thank you to the folks who are listening. And, you know, Todd Zakrizik is not an easy, not a hard person to find because I'm the only one in the world. If there's any way I can help you out, just let me know. Thank you once again to Todd Sakrisik for joining me on today's episode number 422. If you'd like to access the links for today's show, they're at teachinginhighered.com slash 422. Or even better, subscribe to the weekly update where you'll receive the show notes in your inbox each week for the most recent episode, along with some recommendations that are over on top of the ones that show up on the show and some other goodies there. Sign up at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. 
Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak, and was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by the phenomenal Sierra Smith. Thanks to each one of you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed. 